Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakich. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work and their personal takes on life. Morena and welcome back to the Creative Matters podcast. This is episode 6060. This week I'm speaking with Lauren Kitts. Lauren is a sculptor living in the Tasman area at the top of the South Island who works mostly in stone but also in bronze and wood. And there's something about stone it's like uh, it's almost like it it's alive or it, it talks to you or it, it definitely talks to me anyway. Lauren has gained international recognition as a professional sculptor for the last 30 years plus. She exhibits on a regular basis and now has her own sculpture gallery in the Tasman area on her 13-acre property. Her inspiration is the natural world where form and all its complexities abound. She explores the connection between the material world and the unseen and is concerned with the nature of uncertainty and man-made climate change, which is expressed in many of her new works. Lauren has a fascinating practice and I really loved hearing her story and I'm sure you will too. We talk about her deep connection with stone and her passion for form how she sources some of the stone she uses from a local river, Antarctica Mountain, her stone carving process, the tools she uses, and the endless source of inspiration she gets from positive and negative form. Hello, Lauren. How are you? Um, good, thanks. <laughs> it's lovely to meet you. So we're zooming from Muriwai down to the Tasman area near Nelson at the top of the South Island. Yeah, welcome to Creative Matters. Well, thank you for asking me. You're welcome. Now, uh, just looking through all the incredible work that you've made over the 30-plus years you've been sculpting, it was very hard to choose what I was going to include in your blog post because there's so much incredible work of such variety. So um, it's going to be really interesting to hear how you have developed your practice over the years. And um, I'm also really interested to hear about your process, especially working with stone, which I don't know a lot about. But can we go right back to the beginning, Lauren, and talk about where you were born and what kind of childhood you had? Okay. Uh, well, I was um, <clears throat> actually born in Nuremberg, Germany. Um, my dad was in the army and also I was born on an army hospital base. And I lived in Germany and traveled around Europe with my parents until I was three and then we moved back to Colorado and um, I have two brothers and when I was six my parents got divorced and my mother went off with her anthropology professor and we went to Africa 
with her and he and we traveled all over and lived in villages and all sorts of things which was all a bit of a blur because it was a long time ago um but how I ended up in New Zealand was after that that trip to Africa I went back and lived with my dad in Colorado so I did a lot of um he was uh, really into skiing and hiking and things like that so I grew up being very physical skiing hiking that sort of thing um when I was 13 my mother and stepfather who are both anthropologists moved to New Zealand to study the um Polynesian immigration to um, Auckland and um I went uh to live with my mother for a year then I went back and lived with my dad so I've had a very sort of moving around um childhood um must have changed school about 10 times or something I don't remember but um the uh sort of a bit bit lost feeling really of a childhood and didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere and I still don't um have a a place that I the place that I call home is New Zealand because I've lived here now for 40 years but you know I I don't have roots so to speak you know um Anyway, so I went back to Colorado for a while and I came back to New Zealand. I went to university. Um, I, I graduated from high school in Auckland, went to university in Hamilton studying psychology. Don't know why. <laughs> went back to America for five years and did what I really enjoyed. Um, the first time I ever picked up uh, a hammer and chisel and started carving a piece of stone I just knew that was what I wanted to do that it just completely absorbed my attention and all my all my worries and fears and everything just went away and it just it's just such a a way to be in the now and be totally engaged with the now and making something um, and I, I didn't find that same engagement in any of the other media I tried in art school in California that's why I'm a stone carver <laughs> and there's something about stone it's like uh it's almost like it it's alive or it it talks to you or it, it definitely talks to me anyway and um and it's so much easier than people <laughs> <laughs> my childhood was fairly uh I've always been very shy and found it hard to talk to people, um, which is why I guess I, I took up this profession that's very, um, you know, it's just me in, in the rock, really. Um, although having said that, you know, over the years I've met a lot of people who are like me and through stone carving have made connections with people. So, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I imagine that there are quite a lot of kind of like-minded people in that sort of industry. Yeah, yeah, there are. And um, stone carving is a, a, it takes a particular type of person, I think, almost like a misfit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's not particularly gregarious people, I don't think. Um I don't know. I, I suppose you can't really say that as a blanket statement, but you spend a lot of hours on your own 
you and the stone and that's it you know and mm. you like that and I do and you know people do it like it so yeah it's <laughs> I guess you've it's almost like you've created your own world with the stone yeah that's right yeah yeah which is lovely yeah yeah and do you ever actually you know do stone carvers come together very much and work collaboratively do you think um well when I moved back to New Zealand in 1985 I I went to the first ever symposium in New Zealand which was at Western Springs um and there were a lot of um artists there that are now quite well known and they aren't stone carvers they're more in other practices Virginia King Carol Shepherd um that's just the most famous ones that were there but that experience I'd never done that before it was about 25 people working outside in the quarry at Western Springs for I think it was a really long symposium about three months long and just getting to know all these people and sharing ideas and how to do what you do and I I just got addicted to it and I started doing them as much as I could like over the years I every summer I do as many symposiums as there were wherever they were and there became more and more in New Zealand as time went on I did the Mata Mata and Hamilton and Wellington and New Plymouth and Christchurch and uh, Coromandel and just everywhere you know and everywhere you go there's different people there's different stones there's different and as time went on the tools that are available for carving stone changed yeah it it was just like it was like my people fix and my and my creative fix as well and it was also mm. a good way to sell what I made <laughs> yeah so the um, what is the actual purpose of a symposium Lauren and and how does it work well, a symposium, which I found out in that first one in Western Springs, an old Greek word, it actually means drinking party, <laughs> but, um, which some of them were in the old days. <laughs> but it's it's the, the purpose of it is to get together with like-minded people and do what you love with them in, a, in an environment that's totally about that and so the rest of the world kind of goes away and you're just with a bunch of people who do that particular thing so I mean it could be a symposium about anything you know but you would be focusing on whatever topic all those people were interested in um it wasn't so much working collaboratively on a piece but working with people alongside people on your own piece I mean there are I guess there's symposiums going on in New Zealand now where I haven't been to them where different artists um, collaborate on a single piece. Mm. I think it's called the collaborations, New Zealand. Yeah. But I think that's a totally different, a different practice. Mm. And do you come with, with some of your work as well to show the public or to show your um, colleagues, your peers? Um, these symposiums, you're usually working on quite large pieces of stone. Like um, the, the first ones I did, we were working on two-ton blocks of stone. Um, and so there's a lot of heavy machinery and dust and noise and finished pieces wouldn't really fit in that environment. Um, there were a couple I did in, in Auckland, actually in Albany, where we weren't allowed to use power tools because of the, the situation we were in. 
and we were carving fairly soft stone. And we did bring some along, uh, I think, at the end to sell. Mm. But as a rule, that wasn't really the purpose. It was not to, I mean, we with 25 artists all bringing their own work, there would just be too much work. Yeah. And usually at the end of these symposiums, there would be an auction and that'd be too much to auction off. So, yeah, we that wasn't really mm. It was just, mm. yeah. More of a working working space and coming together with with other artists who had similar practices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds amazing. During the day, you would like go and talk to your neighbor or somebody across the field or whatever about what you're doing, and say, "What Mm. do you think about that? What do you reckon about that line?" You know, and they'd be like, "Mm, "No, no, I think you should change that," or whatever. You know. (laughs) Yeah, and that would be great when it's such a solo practice in general. And yeah. how did you actually find that when you when you say that you're a shy person and and like to work on your own? Really um, educational and quite um, liberating, I suppose, because I was with people who sort of spoke my language, you know, yeah. language of form. Uh, you, when they say, what do you think about that line? They know exactly what you meant. Whereas if you ask general public they're like what do you mean I don't understand what you're saying (laughs) so it was like just a a revelation that there were people who spoke the same language so to speak as me Mm, yeah and had the same thoughts I guess too yeah that'd be amazing so uh, let's just talk about your practice I mean in general you obviously specialize in stone I'm not sure if that's how you see it but that's that's your main material that you use but you also make sculpture in wood and bronze yeah so um could you describe the kind of work that you make and why you make it um well a lot of what I make is is um determined by the material I mean there's certain things that you can make in bronze that you just can't make in stone and the same goes for wood. You know, there's certain things in wood you can't make in bronze or stone. So each different material has a, a different properties that kind of, in a way, direct what you're going to do to start out with what what the actual material can stand. You know, like if you're trying to make a a really thin leaf, for example, out of um, stone, it has to be a particular kind of stone. And it'd probably be easier to make it out of bronze or wood because it won't break, <laughs> that sort of thing. So a lot of the form is is informed by the material. And then even the stone, what you can make with different kinds of stone is is really dependent on the type of stone. I, I did a lot of soft stone carving to begin with, um, where you can make you can make things with a lot of holes in them and it quite intricate carving that you can do with tools that you just can't do with power tools hand tools just sort of interested in um what kind of form you're interested in and what sort of themes kind of um you know inspire you to make the work that you make over the years it changes depends on where you're at you know emotionally and in your life um when I had young children, um, my subject matter, a lot of my subject matter was around that. 
and um, around my various things that I went through uh, in relationships and things. Um, now I'm more about actual just just pure form rather than the subject matter relating back to issues in my life. Um, I've sort of come to a point in my life now where things are fairly settled. Kids are grown up, settled down. Um, so what I'm working on at the moment is more to do with just the fascination I have with form, which is all about positives and negatives. Mm. You know, it's all about um, what goes in and what goes out and how they relate to each other. And um the things I find in nature that do that are like rolling hills and clouds and water and, you know, just, just those, the sort of elements probably inform my work now more than emotional sort of ups and downs of my life, which has mm. sort of informed it earlier on. Yeah. And you were quite figurative, weren't you, when you were using the soft stone? Yeah. Um, and do you feel like you've gone more abstract over the years? Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of, I don't, I feel like I've done figurative <laughs> and I'm not interested in it anymore. I, I wanted to master it and I, I was, it was more like I just wanted to master it. Like everything that I do, every piece I look at as um, practice. You know, like a doctor has a practice while a sculptor has a practice and you can't expect every piece to be a masterpiece. But every piece that you do is uh, it's a practice towards executing something challenging, something that you haven't tried before. Some can I can I do this? You know, is it possible? Um, so I wanted to master the the form of humans um, because you know so many people associate sculptor with you know Michelangelo classical sculpture. You know that's a sculpture. They don't, they, not so much anymore. I mean, abstract sculpture is fairly well known now. But, um, you know, and as a kid, the first sculptures I saw were Michelangelo. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> how did that, how, how could somebody make that, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to try. And um, it was more about um, mastering technique, I think. Yeah. You studied fine arts at the University of California in 1985. Yeah, and is that where you learned how to how to work with stone? Uh, yeah, um, I, we had a, an introduction to everything in that degree, you know, painting, sculpture, printmaking, clay, just everything. So I wouldn't say I mastered stone at all. We just had a section where you did stone, and that was the section I liked the most. It was when I came back to New Zealand permanently in 1985 and found these symposiums and just started doing it all the time I mean I had I was pregnant with my first child at that symposium in Western Springs I was pregnant with my second child at a symposium in Hamilton and you know nothing stopped me I was just like my little kids were like at home with their dad and I was at a symposium mm, <laughs> amazing yeah, I and just, that was that. Um, Lauren, was that your full time, your full time job, and, and that's what you saw as your full time career was being a yeah, sculptor. Yeah, that's, that's been me, you know, right I, from the beginning. I mean, I've had lots of jobs to, to you know make ends meet. You know, I've been a waitress, I've been a a cook, I've been a 
Um, I worked in a bronze foundry for a while, um, you know, but, you know, to me, those were, they were just to make money to do what I wanted to do. Mm. And then once I was, I think I sold my first ever sculpture at that Western Springs Symposium, and I thought I can make money doing this. And so I just threw my whole heart and soul into it and just did it full time. And, you know, I never made much money, but I made enough to keep going through all yeah. these, you know, that's, I mean, people say to me, gosh, you've made so much work, you know, like, why you made so much work? Well, <laughs> that's what I do. You know, that's who I am. And mm. my practice and, and that's how I made money. And that's how I survived emotionally and, and um, financially all these years. So that's, um, that's just who I am. You know? mm. And people always say, you know, well, how do you make money? How do you actually make real money? You know, I'm like, well, this is how. <laughs> this is yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you obviously have had a very busy practice. And, you know, because like you say, you have made so much work. But that's what you do every day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And you actually have to be quite um, dedicated and um, have a routine in your life to do it. You, you have to be strong enough. You have to be healthy enough. So you have to have some sort of routine around health and fitness. So, you know, your whole day is either taken up with that or working pretty much. Mm. Yeah. Time for anything yeah and working with stone must you know be quite physical and keep you pretty strong and fit yeah 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 which is amazing yeah i mean i'm probably an extreme example of of a, of a stone carver i mean a lot of people they have other careers and are stone carvers as well i don't you know each to their own but just um for me, you know, I haven't found anything that I wanted to do as much as that. So mm. get one life, you might as well do what you want to do with it. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. <laughs> and um, can we just talk a little bit, Lauren, about the actual stone as a med- as a as the medium that you mostly use? So you I know you use um, quite a lot of stone from the area that you're from, the Tasman area at the top of the South Island. And um, and now you are mostly working with hard stone like granite and marble and schist and that kind of thing. And also found river stones, which are really amazing. Um, so can you just talk to us about how you source your stone and then how you actually manage it and work with it? Yeah, well, I think that's the most difficult part of being a stone carver is um, that it's heavy and um Sourcing it is difficult. Um, I used to source it when I lived in Auckland. I used to get most of my hard stone from stone merchants. Um, And, I mean, unless you're really successful and can afford to import really good stone from overseas, like Carrara Marble or something, which I'm afraid I've never been able to do so far, um, you need to uh, kind of find what's available i mean at the moment i'm living in a place where it's readily available all around me you know i can go to um the river 
and just look around and find rocks that I want. They're usually quite small, and you're only allowed to pick up ones that are that you can carry yourself from the river. You're not allowed to just take giant rocks out of the river. Anyway, you can't because there's no access. So I have a truck with a crane, but um, I, you're not allowed to use that for Riverstone. Um, but the whole mountain behind me is made out of marble, and it's Marble Mountain, Takika Mountain. And um, a lot of it is um, is sourced by roadworking places and stuff, and they sell it, and they've already brought it to their yard and you can pick it up from them with your truck with a crane on it if you have one of those, which I do. Um, you need something like that. If you're a stone carver, you need a way to pick it up and move it around, you know. It's, um, it's just part of the, the game. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I source it from the actual mountain sometimes. There's a place called Cairo Farmstay that's uh, actually had the marble from – the parliament is from there and you can just go and look around on their 40 acre farm and pick out what piece of marble you want that will fit your idea. Wow. That's like, if you, if you've got a preconceived idea, I want to make such and such, you would go there because you can see the stone is just lying on the ground. You can see how long it is, how wide it is, how tall it is, and you can buy it from them. Mm. Um, Or if you don't really know, you just want some stone and you're not sure what you want to make yet. You can, you can get marble from these um, road work places, which, you know, it's a travesty. They just chop it up and put it on the road, which I think is terrible. <laughs> I'm saving it from roads. <laughs> yeah. Which is good. Going to a much better place. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. And then um, when you bring the stone, like a, a big piece of marble back on your truck, what happens then? Um, well, it depends if um, if it's a commission or if I already have an idea. If I already have an idea, I usually would start on it straight away. I'd take it off my truck and I've got like a open air workshop um, with various boxes of different heights that I can put the stone on, depending on how big it is. Um, if it's really big, I usually start working on it outside because it's too big to put into the workshop and get most of the bulk off it before I can move it in there. Um, yeah, and then you just map it out, draw on the stone, start cutting it with diamond blades and um, it's called roughing out. You get the, the main shape out. And then you just refine and refine and refine from there. And what to- tool? What tools do you use for that um, that refining process? Um. Uh, so once you've got a rough shape, you have to get all the tool marks from the the diamond cutting blades off. So you use a like grinding discs, which are a lot finer, um, and then. If you want to do really small detail, there's air tools with chisels. There's air tools with um, Dremel, Dremels that uh, have different bits. Um, for hardstone, pretty much all the tools are diamond, diamond chips. And the final refining process is um, sanding pads, which are 
sort of rubber pads that are embedded with diamonds, um, diamond chips. Uh, so they go from 50 grit up to 3,000. Wow. And, yeah, you just uh, keep going up a grade, up a grade until you get to the polish that you want. Mm. So that sandpaper actually ends up doing the polishing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you don't apply anything at the end? Um, I usually apply a thing called stain stop because marble is uh, it's limestone, it's, so it's fairly um, porous, and if you don't put anything on it, it will um, eventually erode and turn black. Um, so this stain stop stuff just keeps that from happening and keeps the grain visible mm-hmm. and everything like that. Mm, that's fascinating. And so I guess you have to wear um, protective gear and face mask and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the the downside to being a stone mm. is you have to wear full face masks and gloves and ear muffs and, um, you know, knee pads. And the older you get, you've, you've got pads all over your body. You've got arm pads and wrist pads and knee pads. And you know, like, it's sort of like this robot, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's you know people think that art is something that we you pleasantly do and you're sitting there and like there's there's videos of Barbara Hepworth and she's like perfectly clean and she's got a skirt on and she's standing with the ocean in the background and she's going chip 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 and I'm just like <laughs> not what happens <laughs> it's just not it's true not, not reality <laughs> no you just get really disgustingly dirty every day you're just completely covered in dust and yeah. You know, when you first you, you walk into the workshop and you put on dirty clothes, <laughs> you mm. instead, you put on, you know, you, you wear the same clothes every day because otherwise you'd be continually washing your clothes. So you put on dirty clothes. And once you do that, you're like, OK, I'm in the zone. Let's go for it. You know, I'm already dirty. Let's go. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> just you know, a good way to look at it, I guess. <laughs> it's so good fathom that you would want to be that dirty (laughs) Mm, yeah I mean you must you must have the passion you'd have to have the passion to be able to kind of put up with that kind of environment I guess yeah yeah you you have to be slightly strange I think (laughs) (laughs) well that's Uh, really interesting and how do you actually um go about coming up with your design do you do a lot of drawing or research or anything like that and then how do you sort of um I mean, you said you you draw onto the stone, but how do you kind of form that design? And does the design actually change as you're making your original design? Does it sort of evolve into other things sometimes? Or do you always have exactly what you've planned as what's going to happen? Well, when I first started out, I, I would make a marquette, like a little clay marquette. So I would use that as a guide and I would use that. I would draw a 2D pencil drawing onto say when I was first working it was blocks cut blocks of Omri stone so it was quite easy to transfer a design a clay maquette design onto a block of stone you just draw it on chop out this chop out that it was almost like you were executing something that you'd already made as time has gone by I've gone away from that process because um that that was a good way to work to learn how to do it to learn how to do stone carving but once you know how to do it you can you can almost it's like improvisation like a uh, jazz 
you you know your instruments you know what they can do and you're working with other musicians and you can play off each other well i work with the stone so the stone's my instrument or the other musician and i'm the instrument my body's the instrument and the stone is kind of like we are cooperating together to uh create something that's instantly created rather than created and recreated uh, which is what a maquette process does mm. so um what i usually do is i have a i have a a concept i want to make uh a form about the ins and outs of say the ocean how how the ocean looks when it's like waves you know how they change all the time they're up and then they're down they're up and they're down how can I capture that in a piece of stone so I I only have like this feeling in it and I I can draw it immediately on the stone without having to make it first and then the stone definitely informs and it does change because especially this marble around here um when you first get it you can't really see what the inside of it's like a lot of it looks black on the outside um, and it's just a lumpy amorphous. I mean, you 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 can only make what fits into the lump of stone. You can't make something it doesn't fit into the lump of stone. So quite often the lump of stone informs the shape as well. Um, you really have to work with the stone, and you can't be bossy. You can't say, "Nah, you have to do that." You know, because it's, it's just like, "Nah, I'm going to break." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And you work quite a lot with that, as you said earlier, the positive and negative ideas and sort of creating spaces and things inside things and that kind of thing. Yeah. How do you actually manage that with a block of stone? Well, to be honest with you, a lot of um a lot of what I've been doing lately is uh it's about positive and negative. Like if something goes out on one side it goes in on the other. So I like to carve the whole piece of stone. And also in doing that, it makes the whole piece of stone lighter. So the more you carve that way and then you turn it over and carve in the other way, it gets lighter and lighter, the stone. So you can turn it over and turn it over and work on all sides of it. Um, I forgot your question. <laughs> um, just that idea of of working with the positive and negative in your work. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, to me, everything is about positives and negatives, and form and the absence of form, life, death. You know, the positive and negative are like the distilled elements of of existence, really. And mm -hmm. so, it's an endless source of um, of ideas. You know, it's you can distill it into just a positive form and then the negative form next to it being created by the positive form. Or you can have it be about, you know, how a rolling hill goes up and then it has to go down to go up again. But, you know, all of life is like that. You know, it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up and then it goes down. And you can fight against that or you can you can try and express it however you can and you know I try and express it in stone which is a really hard medium to try and express it in but <laughs> I think that's the challenge of it you know and mm -hmm. that the when you actually pull it off 
like the last piece I did where I felt like I pulled it off was a piece called Aotearoa. It's about it was about cloud forms, and um, at the end, it was a really large piece of marble, and I couldn't couldn't move it with my crane at first. I couldn't. It was just so big; it was like unmanageable. So I had to carve one side of it, doing the in and out, and then and to get it light enough to turn it over to do the other side. And I must have turned it over and turned it over and turned it. I don't know how many times, but to get it to sing. So all the ins and the outs are married to each other and and they flow like music. Um, and you can see that just by looking at it. That's That's kind of the goal to look at something and go and it makes it makes you feel good it's just like the ups and the downs and it all just makes you feel good I don't mm-hmm. it I really don't, does yeah. I mean is that inspired by by cloud and the idea of the long white cloud Aotearoa yeah. 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 yeah and that is I mean I, I said to you earlier that's that's what attracted me to your work in the beginning that's the first thing I saw and I just felt oh my gosh I mean, it's just so beautiful. It's it's got such a softness to it, hasn't it? And yeah. It really, it really feels cloud-like, and it's obviously very heavy and hard. But it has a has this crazy sort of cloud-like well, softness. Opposites is I'm trying to make something that's super hard mm. and make it soft, you know, yeah. and make it easy and make it look flowing. And when you've really achieved that. Hard and dirty and <laughs> not mm. soft. It, you know, it's the opposites. You know, it, yeah. Fascinates me. I'm just like, to me, you know, it's an endless source of inspiration to me. The, I can the imagine, and just sort of unveiling that, you know, gorgeous white and sort of grey color from from the darkness. In a way, it's it's like yeah. you're bringing the light up. Yeah, and well, that, it's so striking. Stage, you don't you don't even know where the grain really is until you're at the polishing stage with Takika marble because there's crap scratches all over it from the tools. Once you get to the polishing stage, you can see that the, the grain follows the shape that you've made. And you're like, so that's an, another element of stone carving that always keeps me going. It's like all of a sudden you're like, the stone says, this is, this is you know, what I have to give to this piece, you know. And you're like, wow. <laughs> and mm. you do it. You know, it was there the whole time and you didn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would be a really beautiful part of your practice. It's yeah. almost like a kind of little gift the stone is giving or or some sort of little surprise through your practice that ends up kind of informing how you yeah. fin- finish the work off, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful, that one. And that's just kind of sitting on a, on a steel stand, is that right? Yeah, well, that was like an experiment to try and get it to float. Because I've, you know, that's another problem with sculpture is you've made a stone sculpture in particular, you've made the sculpture, how are you going to present it, you know? Um, and presentation is really important because if you present it wrongly, it ruins the whole sculpture. So that was a, an experiment in trying to get <clears throat> the the stone to float without actually having to be supported by a stand or a um, a pole or anything. Yeah, and I think it kind of works. I, I think it definitely works. Yeah. It's lovely having the space underneath it. Yeah. So yeah. it does give that sense of floating, yeah. yeah. I think that uh, ultimately if 
it was placed in a garden where the uh, the legs of the the metal frame disappeared on in like grass so it would be like floating on the grass would yeah. be the ideal situation mm. that's um, beautiful yeah and do you come up with your own design for all of your um the stands that the the work sits on and do you make those yourself as well um i didn't make that that one myself because i don't have uh, welding gear but um uh, there's a welder just down on on my road who made it oh, that's <laughs> yeah. handy it was able to come up because it had to be made so that it sat on where the bumps are. So he had to make the stand exactly to the shape of the sculpture. So it was just really serendipitous for how it happened. Yeah. Um, but usually, yeah, I do. I make them myself. Um, I, I probably don't make them as as well as I could have because I, by the end of making the sculpture, I'm usually quite tired and sometimes I get a bit lazy with the stands. <laughs> yeah, that's the last step in the process. Yeah. And then you've also made um, the sculpture called Unfolding recently, which is out of the same kind of marble. Yeah. Is that kind of thinking of the same sorts of ideas? Yeah. Um, well, that was actually inspired by a mushroom that I saw on one of my walks every day before I start work I go for like an hour long walk and I saw this really strange mushroom and I took a picture of it and it's very in and out the, the mushroom it sort of comes up and then it fell folds out and folds in and I was like wow that's kind of really like the clouds and the and the the rolling hill idea but it's it's more um organic kind of like what plants do plants are mm. also all about ins and outs um so yeah that was a it's like an abstraction of of that really interesting mushroom and at the moment i'm working on a really large version of that which is made from a piece of like slag tight you know when slag you know when they the things in caves fall down and mm-hmm. they create uh, one, one, one of those anyway. stalactites or stalactites yeah or stalagmite somebody gave me and I was afraid to cover it because I thought it would be too hard and ruin all my tools but it's actually really softer than marble <laughs> in fact it's too soft but um it's really really big it's sort of a really big version of the unfolding piece um so it's sort of all about unfolding and also enclosing so enclosing unfolding the, the opposites of that yeah mm, beautiful and your work I mean most of your work is responding to sort of flora and fauna and I know that you love birds um and you have made quite a few bird sculptures yeah I love birds because to me they're a symbol of freedom and um I think we all want to feel free I I know I do and the uh, I've made a lot of piwaka walkers <laughs> Because they're very sculptural birds, you know, they have such interesting um the way their their tails go and their little feathers out the side. And we've got heaps of them around here. They come in the house in the fall and they're flying around the house and they're flying around the garden <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> they're beautiful yeah. birds, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and those works, I mean, sometimes well, they all have an an element of abstraction about them, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really interested in um, distilling 
a, a natural object to its kind of like simplistic, simplest forms and how those forms interact with each other rather than trying to represent something accurately, realistically. Um, I mean, I've, I have attempted to do that, you know, portray something realistically and it was a good exercise but it's not really doesn't really grab me yeah but yeah mm-hmm. uh, i don't find it quite so interesting because it's like a step further it's like if you if you want to look at a realistic bird look at the bird you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right or the photograph yeah yeah oh, I, I really love the the way you've captured the birds through that sort of that sort of abstraction viewpoint I guess and uh, can you talk about some of the other stones that you use I know you've um, you've sourced things from the Coromandel stone from the Coromandel and other things in the past so what other stones have you actually used Um, I've used a lot of andesite um, which is a stone that's there's quite a lot of um, in New Zealand there's a lot in New Plymouth and there's some in the Coromandel andesite is a it's a got a lot of glass in it so it's um very abrasive on your lungs and your tools (laughs) but it's readily available and you can get it in quite big big lumps but it's not my favorite stone to work Mm. it doesn't really have much character it doesn't really have a grain Um, it's uh it's just kind of dark um the the green andesite from the coromandel has a bit more character but um, it's uh, quite shattered because it's from a quarry and I think that they've just blasted it out of the hill. Mm. Um, granite. Granite. I love granite. Granite is great. There's a lot of granite around here and it's it's got character. Each piece of granite is different, different colours, different textures, um, and it kind of, <laughs> if stone could cooperate, it would be granite because you can, it's uh, hard enough that you can pretty much execute pretty much anything you want with it, um, especially if it's a cut block from overseas. There's some amazing granites from overseas. And, and you know, people are afraid of it because it's hard, but it's good that it's hard. It's, uh, that's its, uh, it's good quality. Mm. What is the good thing about having that hard stone? What, why is that good for you? Well, if it's too soft, it's hard to polish, and it's um, it's crumbly. It breaks easily. It's a uh, it's really fickle. <laughs> it has a mind of its own. It's spongy. It's just not. It's just not easy to do what you want with it. You have yeah. to really work with it, and you're like it. It dictates more what you can do than you dictate what you want to do with it, sort of thing. You know, right. Yeah, <laughs> not such a collaborative process of you and the stone. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I know that you, in some of your works, you do combine different stones um, in the one piece, which is quite beautiful, having that lovely contrast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, recently I've been working with Riverstone, and every Riverstone around here, I've never seen so many different stones in one spot in my life like you go down to this one river and in the river there's just looks like there's every stone from everywhere in the world there's like stones that have got like five different colors in them there's stones that have got stripes there's green ones red ones brown ones just 
amazing amount of I don't even know what they are. You know, I wish I was a geologist. I probably wouldn't know what they were, but, and they all react differently. Um, so combining those with each other is quite interesting because, A, there, there are certain shapes and you can only do certain things with them because they're only like that big. Um, so you have to real, really go with what you've got and think how can these two things relate to each other? How yeah. can I? work together you know and you're thinking about the color and the form and the size and you know it's a really uh quite a different way of working than working with a great big piece of stone that you work on for weeks at a time mm. small they take less time and you really you're thinking about the relationship they have with each other and and each stone is different to carve too so yeah, that'd be beautiful. And it's just so nice that you're able to gather your materials from, you know, where you live. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's fun too. You know, it's a day trip out to this amazing river and nice countryside. And you're like, it's like a treasure hunt. Oh, look at that one. Yeah, oh. I can imagine. <laughs> it's like, you know, people who love collecting shells, it's probably a similar kind of feeling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be so lovely. Gorgeous. So, um, it's amazing that you do all this incredible work with stone and you have done for so many years, but you also sometimes work with bronze and sometimes with wood. Yeah. So I know that you worked with um, in the eighties in the artworks um, foundry, which is yeah. where Jim Wheeler was also who yeah. we interviewed a few months ago. Yeah. Um, and you know, Jim. Yeah. So um, how did, how did you get to the foundry and, and what made you start, taking an interest in bronze well when I did my art degree in California we did quite a bit of bronze casting and I I do like bronze casting because you can really make anything that you want with bronze it's it's a uh, because the original thing that you're working with is wax um, and wax is almost it's actually better to work with than clay because clay is so floppy and wax is more rigid um and you've got the whole you can make molds you can actually make molds of natural objects like leaves um or whatever so there's endless possibilities with bronze so when i came here i was looking for a job and i saw that and thought hey i, I can make money and learn about the process and um hopefully make some art and yeah it was great working there Meeting mm. Jim, who was a fellow ex-Pat American, they decided that New Zealand was a better place to be. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm a full, a full-blown Kiwi now. I, I really have no, uh, no interest in America. <laughs> no. Anyway, back to bronze. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. We won't go there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, you learned the process there and you were actually working there for a while, were you? Yeah, I worked there for two years. Um, so we, I sort of rotated from what they call fettling bronze, which is um, getting the imperfections off the already cast bronze piece, to doing some fettling the wax, which is getting the wax ready to be cast. Um, I didn't, I think... Jim mostly was doing the mold making, which is quite technical. And um, 
you need to know a lot about that. He's a, a virtuoso mold maker. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was just good to know all the different processes that were mm. in there. Yeah. And like, like we, like Jim and I spoke about, you know, it's just so nice that that process can be taught to, to more people because it is does seem like it could be a dying art, you know, just yeah. working well, with bronze. More of it, but there's no foundries. Uh, the only yeah. foundries are in Auckland and Christchurch. Mm. It is kind of a dying art. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, hopefully it will sort of come back somehow. Maybe you need to start your own foundry in the Tasmania. Yeah. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of gear, and you know, and you have to know a lot of technical things about boiling points of bronze and heating up kilns and stuff that I don't know about you know it'd be like mm. into a whole nother um, expertise area yeah. yeah there's so many elements to the process isn't there yeah it's it's a very the thing I like about stone carving it's as immediate what you do with your body is what you get with your product uh, bronze is the opposite it's kind of like really removed from the final product um you you make it out of wax and then you have to turn it into bronze and then you have to take all the the feeders off and get it back to what it looked like when it was in wax and then you have to put a patina on it and you don't get the final product for ages and ages you know it's like mm. not very immediate so maybe it's because I'm a slightly impatient person I don't know <laughs> I can understand, and it's also hard when you have to send it off for certain stages to maybe somebody else to to do the crafting. That that would be yeah. quite quite yeah. hard, I imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what kind of things have you made with bronze? Well, I've made all sorts of things. I've made lots of birds. I've made abstract um, abstract figures and. Um, Forms from nature, um, leaf forms. I haven't made anything in bronze for quite a while. So, mm. Do you think yeah. you'll ever go back to it or are you stuck with your stone now? Uh, yeah, I mean, if somebody wanted me to make something out of bronze, I'd be happy to, you know, if, if they were happy to pay for the process. I mean, I would have to make it out of wax and send it to a foundry and they would actually turn it into bronze. So, you know, that's the technical part. The mm. the technicians turn it into bronze, but the artist actually is working with wax rather than, or whatever. I mean, uh, the original, what they, what they call the original, which they turn into bronze could be made out of anything. I've made bronzes from stone carvings. So you can make a mold of a stone carving, turn that into wax and then turn it into bronze. Right. I've done before. Yeah. You can turn it into glass if you do glass casting. I've made a few glass castings from stone carvings. Mm. Um, yeah. it's The original can be made from anything. So the actual bronze itself is like, it's sort of what the technicians turn your original into, like mm. working in a foundry and then you're the technician. So. Yeah. So I can imagine why stone would just feel that much more sort of intimate in a way that you're more connected to that piece of stone from beginning to end yeah 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 I can understand that and you do work with wood as well and sometimes you combine wood and stone yep. so what led you down the wood path 
Um, well, I did quite a bit of wood carving at, at art school, and I probably did more wood carving back then than I've ever done because I had wood carving tools, and I didn't really have any stone carving tools back then. Um, I used to do really complicated wood carvings all <laughs> uh, by hand to begin with, hand, you know, chisel and sandpaper. <laughs> I look back at it now, and I'm just like, Ooh, I wouldn't do that now. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I I like I like wood. I like the smell of it. I like the grain of it. I like that it's um it's quite easy to carve by hand, so it's not so loud and dusty as as stone carving. Mm. Uh, on a large scale for outdoor sculpture, it's uh, it just doesn't last. It um you know even if you put lots of product on it, eventually it sort of fades away if people don't look after wood carvings they you know they just think that they're going to last forever and they don't they just uh mm. they just don't last so i like the permanence of stone mm. but it's interesting in your in your career and your practice you have explored so many different materials and different um processes but really you've sort of keep coming back to stone don't you yeah yeah there's something mm. about it and people are telling me now that I'm 60 plus that I should move into an easier medium for my body. And I'm like, well, I don't think so. <laughs> no. I mean, will you keep will you keep doing it as long as you feel like you can? Yeah, I'm just gonna keep doing it as you know, until I just can't. And I don't know when if, if that will ever be. I mean, as long as I keep fairly healthy and fit i can just keep going you know mm. and it's a good way to get older is to be doing something so physical that actually keeps you strong and fit yeah yeah, yeah. and active yeah that's right yeah that's a good thing but at least you've got the you know you've got things that you could fall back on if you ever wanted to when you're 95 or something like that you could you know yeah, work in, in small yeah. small scale using wood or something that's not quite as physical if you wanted oh, to yeah yeah but that's a long way away, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, do you actually like to work big or do you prefer to work small? Um, I prefer to work big. Um, small, uh, you have the problem of it moving around while you're working on it because you have to apply a lot of pressure. And so you have to have a way to secure it. So you have to put it in a vice and then you have to keep taking it out and turning it around. And it's all a bit, you know, annoying. And if you're working on a really big piece, you can actually, you're just, your body, you're just, you, your body is the tool. You're climbing around it. You're climbing on it. You're, uh, it's just easier. Yeah. Mm, amazing. And um, you seem to have so many ideas and you've made so many sculptures in your life. Do you ever have a problem with creative block? Yeah, yeah. I'll finish something and then I'll be like, oh, no, I have to think of something else to make now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, it's just that thought um, that I've finished and I have to, um, I don't have to, I want to make something else. And so what I have to do is just let it go and just let just let my mind sort of, naturally go to the next thing i don't i don't have a theme that i can just churn out uh another uh, variety of uh such and such 
you know, I'm, I'm not like a, a well-known figure maker or a well-known leaf maker or a well-known person who makes holes in rocks or something. You know, everything that I do is, is has to be a challenge and it has to be different from the last thing. I don't know why that is, but it's just it's how I am. Mm. Um, it, it, I like to follow it. At the moment, I'm following kind of a theme, but each piece is totally different from the last piece. And so, yeah, I do get a block because it's not only what am I going to make, it's what I'm going to make it with. So unless I have the right piece of stone, I have to uh, either go and get one that's the right or try and figure out what I can make with what I've got. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes your work is informed by the stone and sometimes you have the work in your head and you need to go and find the stone, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, so interesting. And you live, as we said, in the Tasman area, the top of the, north, of the South Island of Aotearoa, and you've got this amazing home-based sculpture gallery on your 13-acre property, uh, which sounds amazing. Can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, well, we moved here from Auckland five years ago and um, bought this place because I wanted to. We wanted to find a place that I could work from home. Uh, so basically, we bought this place because it had a workshop on the property, but it also had a lot of land around it, um, which we have landscaped and put sculptures all around on and opened it officially in 2019 to the public. Um, it's uh, a little bit off the beaten track. It's not, you know, in a, a rural uh, central area. It's more a more rural area. But um, that's kind of the charm of it. You come up a, a long dirt road and there's there's orchards and um, lambs and <laughs> fields and apple fields and you know this is just really like an a, a nice day out in the country if you come to this gallery it's not like your average uh, gallery and it's all outdoors so we're pretty much open all the time mm. yeah it really looks so beautiful and it's such a great place for your work yeah yeah, yeah. and is that one of the main places that you sell your work now yeah, uh, my larger work. I mean, the other reason that I did it was um, because I work in stone. Um, transporting large pieces are a bit of a hassle. Um, <laughs> not only, you know, you have to find some way to pick them up and put them down. You have to be able to get them in and out of galleries. And then the gallery owners have to be okay with, you know, these huge lumps of stone. And, you know, a lot of people don't know how to look after stone and so I've just been really disappointed over the years with exhibiting with the galleries because of those factors and um you you can only exhibit for a couple of weeks and then you have to take it away mm. and you can somewhere else you know so just have somewhere that you can exhibit large work permanently and sell it is ideal yeah, yeah. that makes sense mm, yeah. that's perfect and how do you find the idea of having your garden open to the public and having to kind of speak with people about your work and that kind of thing? Well, I quite like it because, you know, as I said, I don't see a lot of people. It's a very solitary um, pursuit being a stone mm. carver. 
So seeing people is kind of a treat for me, you know, I'm like, and and talking about my work, I don't mind doing that. It's, uh, you know, it's something, it's a way to talk to people. And, you know, they usually talk to me about themselves and they're very interested in what I do, which is nice. And um, yeah, I like it. That'd be lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's very personal. It's it's a lovely way to do it. And then you know, actually dealing with the people who are potentially going to buy your work yourself in your own way would be nice. Yeah, and then yeah, you you can discuss with them what sort of um, presentation they want at their house. Quite often, I go to their house and say, oh, they say, well, what do you reckon? Should we put it here or there? Or what should we put it on? Or how should we put it? So they've got you know an installation expert me and a and a deliverer me and the maker me so it's all in one package you know where if you buy a piece of art especially sculpture from a gallery you you've got to get it to your house somehow and then you don't know how to put it up and stuff like that but that's only for the locals i mean people do buy things from me from they're from auckland or christchurch or wherever and you know i ship them so there's still that element of it but um yeah, for the for the people around here, it's it's good to be able to buy direct from the artist and have yeah. their. Mm, totally, that's brilliant. Yeah, and how do commissions work for you, Lauren? I mean, do people tell you that they want something like something else you've made, or do they leave it to you, or do they come up with a bit of a, a design brief that you kind of work around? Yeah, pretty much all of the above. Um, some people are very specific. I want a cat and I want it to be in this style. I don't really do that kind of commission too much anymore. I used to do quite a bit when I was, you know, relying on sculpture to survive. <laughs> I'm not so much anymore. Um, uh, the the kind of commissions I'll take on now are more they have an idea of what they want, but they say they want me to interpret their idea in my style. However, I would choose to so then I would make a a drawing or a maquette and say you know is this sort of what you're thinking about and they'd be like yeah or no or whatever yeah Mm. yeah and do they often choose the stone that they are after um yeah sometimes Uh, the last commission I did they actually chose the stone and the design brief and um yeah, it was a very specific commission. Um, they gave me kind of the freedom to present their ideas how I wanted, but they definitely wanted certain elements to be present in the work, you know. Mm. And how do you find that kind of commission work where you have the kind of end product in mind? Um, I find it challenging and it's a good exercise, but I don't enjoy it as much as um making my own work um I, I, I wouldn't say i don't enjoy it as much i just i i just find it's a totally different thing you know yeah it's, yeah it's you a, definitely wouldn't want to be doing that only that no i wouldn't want to be doing only that i wouldn't do only that no no no, <laughs> no. And uh, just the last question before we get to our sort of regular quick fire questions that we have at the end of every episode what do you see is in the future for you as an artist? Mm. Um, well, I, I I hope that I will be able to 
continue to grow my um, practice so that I am more able to have the freedom to make what I want to make without the constraints of um, there's so many constraints with time uh, with a uh, stone carving. Uh, I, I think I would like to have more tools available to deal with the weight of stone given my aging body. <laughs> so I, I'm hoping to get more sort of lifting equipment and stuff like that. Um, and to be able to reach a wider, a wider audience with um, the sort of free, free form stuff I've been working with lately. And just on to our quickfire questions. Um, who would you say are your favorite artists and how or have they influenced your work? Well, I, I don't actually have a favorite artist because I think there's so many wonderful artists in the world and so many of them are not known well-known or known at all and um, a lot of artists I really admire I see on Facebook and they're from all over the world and uh, I don't champion any one over another I think they're all equally as important to everybody's development to look at other people's work and appreciate it and you know gather ideas from other people's work is important than being stuck on one person yeah hyper work yeah Mm, yeah great answer so true and uh, what would you say to your younger artistic self lauren i would say don't worry so much about you know being famous and successful just look at art as a practice and everything that you do is going to lead you to the next step and it's just you're learning every time you make a mistake you're learning it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out you're learning, you know, and it doesn't matter if nobody likes it, you're learning, you're, you're growing, and you're going to just get better and better the more you do it. Yep. <laughs> so true. Oh, well, Lauren, thank you very, very much for your time. Next time I'm down in the Tasman area, I'm definitely going to come and meet you and see your sculpture gallery. And, right. and uh, it's been so interesting speaking with you, and I feel very privileged to meet you. So uh, thank you very much for being on our Creative Matters podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's been very interesting for me too. That's great. Thank you.